Thank you, Joy. Uh, year six way to staying in today, I believe. I know you're well trained. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, Pleasure to bring the word of God to bear upon us again this morning. In case we haven't met, if you're new or visiting, my name's Ben. I'm one of the ministers here and uh, we love having new people here and I hope that you uh, really do enjoy your time with us. Uh, I'm terrible with names, so please come and introduce yourself to me four times and then uh, we'll see how we go a few weeks after that. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. This uh, little section of Luke chapter 7, I'll lead us in prayer And then uh, we'll look at it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you yet again for your uh, faithful servant, Luke, who put together this orderly account so that we might know the certainty uh, about the person and work of Jesus that we've come to know and and be assured uh, of what it is we've believed. Father, please uh, give us open hearts and minds as we uh, consider your word to us today that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, whatever else we might say about Jesus' interaction with Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman at this dinner, it is clear that at the very least we're looking at a story that is about sin and about forgiveness. And I'm a little bit sad to say this, but I think that the notions of sin and forgiveness are becoming increasingly foreign to our Aussie modern culture. To see, to understand forgiveness, you definitely have to understand sin, right? To understand forgiveness, you've really got to understand sin. And sin, well, it's a morally loaded word, like the word evil or wicked or something like that. And it seems to me that the only context in which it's okay for us to speak about morally negative things like sin and evil is when we're talking about food, One of the most calorie-laden cakes you can purchase is called, does anyone know what that's called? Yep, a mortal sin. That is correct. Now, when I went looking for this picture, uh, I got into one of those Google searching spirals where you find heaps of stuff, and I found out there's a web company that sell cake recipes and designs and stencils, and they are called the Evil Cake Genius. They even sell T-shirts with the company logo and aprons. And at the moment, you can buy a recipe for a pink lemonade cake that they call yummy as hell. (laughs) Does look kind of tempting, I've got to say. (laughs) By the way, I also found out there's a bit of a trend in the US in some places where they make cakes that look like gory body parts on Halloween and stuff like that. But I spared you from showing you an image of that. But of course, outside the context of unhealthy food, we don't really hear much talk about sin or evil. The terrorist attack on the Twin Towers on the 11th of uh, September 2001 saw those words come back into popular usage for a time. But when I did a bunch of word searches on all the major newspaper articles about the recent bombing at the, uh, the airport in Turkey, I only found the word evil once in one of them. It was The Guardian, for anyone that's interested. And it wasn't even the the journalist, it was someone being quoted saying the evil of terrorism. Now, maybe you've noticed this, but maybe you haven't, but it seems that taking moral responsibility is something that's getting a bit outdated in our way of thinking. And that is because we live in the me generation, 
a generation of the psychological cult of self-fulfillment and it's accompanying narcissism. So the bank knows that to sell itself, it goes, me, 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 and it goes on TV and drives you nuts. <laughs> it's the reason some of my kids in my scripture class think they have the God-given right to be rude and abusive and that ultimately no teacher should ever be allowed to tell them what to do. It's why all of us know someone a little bit like Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter, a greedy, self-centred brat whose parents could never, uh, according to his parents, he could never ever be wrong and he will therefore grow up to become a monster. It's why there's this Broadway star named Paddy Lapone recently stopped a show on Broadway, broke character, and reprimanded a person in the audience who was texting on their phone, even though there'd been repeated calls for people not to have their their phones turned off. And I found out recently Hugh Jackman did a similar thing not that long ago. It's why there are no longer any jails in operation in New South Wales. That's right, there are no jails in operation in New South Wales. We have correctional centres or correctional complexes, which are run by the New South Wales Justice Department's correctional services because criminals aren't punished for their immorality. They are corrected or rehabilitated for apparent lack of understanding. Moral responsibility is on the way out, and that's why sin and evil aren't spoken about so much. So I actually think it's rather refreshing that we have a story about sin and forgiveness. And I think it's the kind of thing our world will benefit from. And I think, as usual, Christians ought to be on the front foot with such things. So let's look at this story with fresh eyes and see what God is actually teaching us here. If you are a bit of a note taker or you like to to see what we're up to, on on the handout you would have received, there's an outline. We're at point one. And uh, the story begins, quite simply, verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, that sounds straightforward enough. It was probably a normal thing for a Pharisee to host a dinner for a travelling rabbi like Jesus. Uh, But we're right to think this could be a little bit of a test, because if you remember last week, Jesus says some pretty sharp things to those Pharisees, so... A little bit ominous. Now, Jesus goes to the dinner, and as was customary, as you can see there, it says he reclined at the table, which means other people would have been welcome to stand or sit around the recliners and listen in on the conversation. Pretty different to our culture, but that's the kind of thing that happened. And someone takes the opportunity. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, I'm guessing it wasn't every day you get a woman whose bad reputation precedes her carrying a very valuable possession, as I've put a picture of one there on the screen, uh, to such a dinner. An alabaster jar would have been very expensive. Go back one slide, thanks, Shane. Would have been very expensive, so the perfume was probably very rare, Given that she's got a reputation of being a sinner, it's highly unlikely that she was a wealthy, well-to-do lady, so it's possible this is her most valuable possession. So now we're really wondering what's going to happen next when we hear this detail. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
Okay, so things are looking pretty weird right about now. What is going on here? Well, the kissing of the feet is an extreme symbolic gesture. It means you consider yourself completely unworthy of this person's grace or attention. And it's saying, I think of you so highly that it's an honour even to greet you at your feet. As for the crying, we're not actually told the reason, although from the rest of the story, it is probably fair to assume that she knew, or at least she strongly suspected, that she had been forgiven for her sinful life. And that Jesus was indeed truly able to do that. So the tears may have been on account of both sorrow and grief for sin and also rejoicing at newfound hope. It could be the case, we don't know, it could be the case that she's crying because she knows that the Pharisee and his mates are so lost and so hard of heart that they've invited Jesus here to try and discredit him. We don't know for sure. But whatever the case, with the tears, her hair and her hands, she's effectively washing Jesus' feet. That is, she's effectively doing the work of the humble household servant. Now, the Pharisee wasn't impressed that Jesus was allowing such a woman to touch him. And we learn why in verse 38. Look with me at verse 38. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The implication here is, according to the Pharisee, Jesus would be shocked and appalled that he had come into physical contact with such a sinful woman. Given that he's not shocked and appalled and he's happy to let her keep doing it, well... Jesus obviously doesn't know about this woman's life and therefore he's not a prophet like the reports have said. The Pharisee has achieved his apparent purpose for the dinner. He's tested Jesus and seen that he's a fraud. Just another one of those many renegade cult leaders trying to get a following by using tricks. But then something amazing happens. For the first time in this account... We learn the name of the Pharisee. Now, I said his name Simon at the beginning because, you know, you heard Joy in the Bible reading, that's his name. But this is the first time it comes up. He's in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, I would assume that they knew each other's names, although maybe not necessarily. But in the way that Luke has told the story, he's giving us a hint. Up to now, it's just been the Pharisee. And I can't help but wonder if it's a subtle way of saying Jesus really is a prophet because he can just name the otherwise unnamed Pharisee. But even if that's not the case, it is absolutely clear that Jesus perceives with great clarity everything that's going on. It's kind of ironic. The Pharisee's just decided he's not a prophet. And the very next thing you see is Jesus being all prophet-like. Uh, and we see that in the way that he addresses Simon's concern in the very next uh, verses. He tells a story of two debtors, debtors, people that owe money, two debtors. Uh, the story goes, verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Or to put it into modern sort of thinking, one person owed about half their mortgage, the other one had a car loan. It was a big car, $50,000 car, but, you know, half a mortgage and a car loan, something along those lines. Verse 42 is a shocker. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, 
That's, all, that's shock number one. So he forgave the debts of both. That's big, bigger shock number two. Now, which of them will he love more? Now, which of them will love him more? Now, in this scenario, both these people are in real trouble. In their time, the inability to repay a debt was seen as incredibly shameful. And in a bit of an honour-shame kind of a culture, losing face like that was a big no-no. It's a bad situation for both these people. Both these people desperately need their debt cancelled, which is what the moneylender does, which is basically unheard of. But of course, the one with the debt ten times as much as the other is clearly going to love the moneylender more. So verse uh, uh, 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Notice it's correct to judge for a lot of the time. Christians judge a lot of things. Someone says you should never judge. That's totally ridiculous. You should make judgments about all sorts of things. Making judgment and passing judgment are two different things, right? Christians need to make judgments about things. Don't pass judgment on people, but decide things. Now, both debtors needed forgiveness, but the amount of gratitude, which in this context is kind of equated with love, is proportional to how much they're being forgiven. It's pretty easy to understand. The greater the debt that's been cancelled, the more the appreciation by the one who couldn't, couldn't pay. Now, the Pharisee would have known that love, love for God and love for neighbour, are of the highest importance as far as God is concerned. The greatest two commandments, of course, are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. A good Pharisee would have recited that on a daily basis. The other command is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. You want to talk about a Pharisee being righteous, well, the first two and most important commandments, how much you love God and how much you love your neighbour, that's a pretty good measure of righteousness. And that means, though, that point three on your outline, the woman is, in fact, more righteous than the Pharisee. She has been forgiven more, therefore, she loves more. Read with me from verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You do not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. We don't know if Simon actually was obligated to do that, but he probably would have been a good, a proud host would, would shower things upon their guests, right? He hasn't done that. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet again. That was, that was almost certainly an obligation. I go see my Jewish family every Passover. You've got to kiss on both cheeks all the way in. Go to synagogue every day and in and out. It takes ages to get out the door because all the kissing that takes place before people get out of there. My uncle, who's Jewish as well, got in trouble on his first church gig because he stood at the door and kissed everybody on <laughs> the way out. This is totally normal. That's like not shaking hands with someone, right? But she did. Verse 46. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Same kind of idea. So, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins, he does know she's a sinner, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, (coughs) Simon, (coughs) Simon, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus could just drop the mic and walk out of there then, couldn't he? Bam! 
Isn't it amazing that our Lord and Saviour quite regularly insulted the hosts that he went to, uh, to dinner with? He really didn't care about the praise of men, did he? But not quite. Jesus has uh, definitely turned the tables on this Pharisee. He's demonstrated that he knew exactly what Simon was thinking, which only a genuine prophet could do, and shown him what he should have known, that true righteousness is not about how well you've kept yourself uncontaminated from sinful people, but about how much you realise you've been forgiven. See, the former, how much you've kept yourself pure, that's really, in the end, going to be all about pride, isn't it? Whereas the latter... How much you've been forgiven? Well, that's going to do to do with humility. And God is the God who lifts up the humble. So Jesus confirms to the woman, in what no doubt would have been a very wonderful word for her to hear, he confirms to the woman what I think she already knew. Verse 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Because it was indeed clear that her sins were forgiven. She was a humble servant of Jesus. To me, it seems really clear that you could tell that she was forgiven by the fact that she'd taken the role of being the humble servant. Followers of Jesus are people who have been forgiven an incredibly huge debt, an unpayable debt. Our rebellion against God, which is hardwired in every human heart, our rebellion against God is more offensive than we have the capacity to understand. And yet Jesus, by dying in the cross on our place, has taken the punishment we deserve so that our debt is completely, 100% cancelled, wiped out, forgiven. And that is why Christians are therefore humble servants. That is why we're keen on serving one another. It's why we don't come to church to be served, to be comfortable, but in order to serve building one another up by speaking the word of God in love by singing the word of God to one another by praying for one another by welcoming our visitors and showing up early and sitting close to the front for the sake of the people who show up late we come to serve now not everyone gets this about Jesus and his followers in fact we see even here verse 49 that the other guests well, they're still questioning Jesus' claims. Can he, is this the guy? Can he really forgive sins? But for the humble woman who knew the severity of her sin, she is a wonderful assurance on the basis of her trust in Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, notice he didn't say anything to the crowds, he just said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. By the way, brothers and sisters, that same faith, that same assurance is definitely ours. If we have trust, which is just another word for faith, that is, if we trust in Jesus to forgive our sins, then we truly are saved. We truly go in peace. So the big point here, I think, is pretty straightforward. Our love for Jesus is proportionate to how much we realise he's forgiven us. Forgiven sinners are humble servants. Now, I said at the beginning that it seems to me that our culture is not so comfortable with the notion of sin. Perhaps that's because the me generation wants to distance itself from moral responsibility. That's concerning because it means more people will relate to the Pharisee than the sinful woman. 
In my experience, it's pretty normal for people, whether this is articulated or not, to think a little bit like this, to think of themselves as a sort of sitting on a righteousness scale where you put someone or something that's morally abhorrent down the bottom. So what's this one got? Hitler, yes, of course. If you want to find something really evil and morally, Hitler kind of just personifies anything evil. But, you know, you could have mass murderer, pedophile, rapist, whatever does it, whatever floats your sin boat, right? Something at the bottom there. And you want to be humble and not proud. So it's like, well, God's way up there. I'm, I'm nowhere near God. So I, I sit just nicely in the middle. I, I'm not perfect. I know, I know I make mistakes and I screw up, but I haven't killed many people or hopefully any people. And <laughs> then you kind of think in these terms of, of having a righteousness scale. Now, I think this is certainly the Pharisees' way of thinking, and Jesus does appeal to it. But I'm not convinced that Jesus himself upholds this kind of view. I think Jesus was using the the Pharisees' own model in order to make his point. There is a much more biblical way of thinking about our degrees of sinfulness and, and righteousness. And I think it's far more far more confronting and far more offensive than we're usually comfortable with. I call it the biblical righteousness scale. The biblical righteousness scale doesn't fit with the way our world usually thinks. See, the problem we always have is that when we put ourselves somewhere near the middle, we're not really being biblical. We're not so proud and arrogant that we'd put ourselves near God at the top because we know we're, you know, not like perfect or anything, but we're not, who have I put there now? Evil, murderer, dictator. Okay, we're not like whatever those bad people are down the bottom, we put ourselves in the, in the middle. But this is the thing we forget, right? In the Bible, God is so much more infinitely holy and righteous and perfect. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And what that means is we need to adjust our perspective and put God way, 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 way further up. So this is what happens when you pan out and see the bigger biblical picture. It starts to do this. Can you see how that works? Whatever we might have considered is a major big difference between us and insert immoral person or thing down there. When you see it from God's perspective, who is infinitely holy, that difference becomes pretty negligible, doesn't it? Jesus' teaching is quite offensive at this point, and it's also true. Do you feel the weight of what's going on here when you consider the holiness of God? And think how dumb and stupid it is to compare yourself to someone that's supposedly further down on the moral scale than where you are. That is why appreciating the death of Jesus is such a wonderful and essential thing for Christians. You see, Jesus, where does he put those who trust in him? He puts them right at the top, seated at the right hand of God. They went from the worst, lowest possible low to the highest possible high. It's nothing good in us. It's everything about Jesus. His death paid for that. His death 
paid for the murdering, raping, torturing person as much as you or I. No difference. So by way of implications then, I think it's fairly straightforward that yet again, humility is really something that Luke uh, is, and more accurately, Jesus is pushing for us. There's this little saying that I always forget who it's attributed to, like all good sayings, it could come from any, any person, but tell me if you heard this one before, right? If not for the grace of God, there go I. Anyone heard that saying before? It's basically, yeah, good. If someone's going to knows where it comes from, please tell me afterwards. I know. Oh, I'm thinking maybe like John Newton or something like that, but yeah, could be anyone. Uh, tell me afterwards. But if not for the grace of God, there go I. It's a wonderful little summary that Christians, we would do well just to keep on our minds. You see something that you think is morally abhorrent or even just mildly annoying or something that you know, gets under your skin. Someone does something really stupid and sinful. Someone does something wrong. If not for the grace of God, there would you be also. Your heart is just as inclined towards sin as anybody and everybody else's. And this is true even in Christ. It's wonderful to have that. I realise now, I've given you guys two sayings. What was last week? Swallow your pride. You have two, you're going to get a lot of sayings from me this series. Swallow your pride is number one. That's a really helpful little thing and you can physically do it like I do. Number two, if not for the grace of God, there go I. It's going to keep you humble, isn't it? if you can actually think like that. And the second thing, I'm sure this applies to everyone at least at some point, is when it's hard to serve Jesus. That is when it's hard to do what you know he would have you do, even though it costs you some time, money, dignity, whatever it is, costs you your friends. Well, just reflect on how much you've been forgiven. If there was some other way you could be righteous before God, then he would never have allowed his son to be crucified on the cross. That was the only way. Our sin really is that bad. Reflect on how much you've been forgiven. Uh, A little verse I'm going to leave you with, which stupidly I haven't put on the screen. It's the only one I want to leave you with. It's not on the screen. Uh, It comes in the book of Hebrews where it says, Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Now, intercede means to plead on our behalf, kind of like a lawyer to a judge. But when it's Jesus doing it, it's always, the answer is always yes, because it's Jesus. Jesus was killed on the cross and he rose again and he ascended into heaven. He's never going to die. Death has no master over him. Why did the Bible writer in Hebrews say that he always lives? Of course he always lives. You don't need to say that he always lives. He lives eternally. But the Bible writer put it in there. He always lives. To intercede for us. That is because we always need him to plead to God on our behalf. So even Christians constantly are being, have been and are being forgiven for their sin by Jesus. Next time it's hard to serve him, put that one in your mind. I'm so sorry I haven't put that up on the screen. Ask me later words and I'll you know, punch myself in the head and say here's where it's from. I know it's in the book of Hebrews. For the time being, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that our Lord and Saviour Jesus really does have the power to forgive sin. And we thank you that uh, he smashes any pretense of us being holier than thou, having that as an attitude. But instead, he lifts up the humble. Father, our sin is so severe and so great 
yet his forgiveness is even more powerful, more severe and greater. Help us, Father, to appreciate just how much he has forgiven us so that we might love him more and more and serve him more and more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.